Last week, our guest teacher, Ian Green, who was with us uh, from the UK, invited us as part of this series where we're thinking about the church. He invited us to think a little bit more broadly. Uh, and instead of thinking of, of the boundaries of church being simply what we do here uh, in this room or in this space, but rather to think more in terms of the kingdom of God, of what does it look like for us to be committed to, to living out God's kingdom elsewhere. So I wanted to follow up a little bit on that this morning by thinking, as I'm sure is really obvious to you, about the Roman Empire. Um, here is a, a map of the Roman Empire uh, in AD 117. This was it at its largest extent. So you see it sort of taking in uh, part of North Africa, sort of re- leaning up into the Middle East, and then all the way across Europe as far as, but not including, Scotland. Um, The Romans never managed to conquer Scotland. Uh, They never were able to. In fact, they were so terrified by the Scots, they literally built a wall across the the borderline to keep the Scottish in Scotland. Um, That has nothing to do with my sermon this morning, but I feel the need to say it regularly. So this was the Roman Empire. Now, when we think about an empire, there's a temptation sometimes to think about this as this is kind of one big Roman country or, or perhaps a series of countries that the Romans uh, sort of took over in their way to so controlling this part of the world. But to be more accurate, what you get with the empire is essentially a, a range of space that was controlled by city-states. Uh, their basic focus within, within the empire was the development of cities. So what they basically looked at, the cities were the hubs of trade, they were the source of the development of economy. Uh, they were where the power was held to look after the, uh, the empire. So, so you don't think about this as one big country, but rather a series of cities and colonies, like city colonies for one of a, uh, we struggle sometimes with language, that were all tasked with a similar sort of role, which was how do we govern, how do we protect, and how do we develop these cities? Now, the Romans came up with a, a kind of clever system as to how they went about doing this. This is a serious problem. Like, it's not easy to move around the Roman Empire. Uh, You can't get from A to B in a a couple of minutes on a plane. There's months involved in moving from one side to the other. So what the Romans did is they used armies. So they marched these massive armies across all of this empire. And as they moved through new cities, they would take over those cities. Sometimes that would happen violently. Sometimes, to be honest with you, the cities kind of heard about the Romans and figured that a more diplomatic approach was, was the way forward. But invariably, as they colonized these various cities, they would pick up more soldiers. So the young men from, from those cities would sort of enlist and they would become Roman soldiers. And, and, and at that point, probably the biggest army the world had ever seen was sort of moving its way around the empire. This was to help the Romans answer the question that they really were committed to was, how do we bring Roman peace to the whole world? How do we bring the peace of Rome to every corner of the world that we know? This, of course, created a a new problem for them, though, because as their empire hit its sort of fullest extent and they had all these city colonies all over the place, they, of course, had more soldiers than they now needed because they'd pretty much conquered everything they wanted to. And Roman soldiers, after this sort of period of their work, were often granted Roman citizenship. In fact, many people, as the the empire grew, because of their acts of loyalty towards Rome, would be granted citizenship by the Romans. So, for example, in 42 BC, when the Romans roll through Philippi and colonize that, Philippi ends up with a lot of uh, sort of citizens. Some of them are former soldiers, and some of them are, are just people that have done things to help Rome. 
The problem was that Rome looked at this and said, well, this is a bit of a problem for us because we have these people and they are citizens of Rome now. They've earned it, they've got the rights to it. So they could literally pack up their bags one day and move to Rome. Rome was already an overcrowded city, but Rome was trying to also be this kind of sort of developed sort of center of philosophy and politics. And, and you really don't want a lot of, well, basically semi-barbarians that have spent their whole life fighting. You don't want them moving into town. You kind of want to keep your military outside of that sort of space. So the Romans had to decide, how do we take these people that have citizenship and stop them from coming back here and causing chaos? And so the idea was that, that we'll change a little bit as to how we do citizenship. So when a soldier had kind of retired from their service, the Romans would say, okay, so you have your citizenship. And that means you can move to Rome now. You can live there. But here's the thing, if you come and live in Rome, who's gonna look after Philippi? Who's gonna look after these sort of bordering sort of uh, empire cities? What we'd really like is if you would stay in Philippi. In exchange for you not coming back to Rome, we're gonna give you tons of land. So you gotta have loads of land and you'll, have to have, you'll get loads of employees to look after that land and you stay out there. What we'd like you to do is take your sword and your shield and your Roman military garb and just stick it in a cupboard somewhere. And then one day, if things get a little tense in Philippi, you're gonna put that back on and you're just gonna bring peace back to Philippi. So this idea was that the Roman citizen, it wasn't a person that, that went to live in Rome, but rather what it was, was it was a person who didn't live in Rome, but instead lived somewhere else in the empire with the express task of somehow helping that place to grow, to be protected, and to develop into this type of city that Rome would be proud of. Essentially, the citizens brought the culture and flavor of Rome to Rome. So ironically, this means that being a citizen of Rome didn't mean that you were going to Rome, didn't mean that you lived necessarily in Rome, didn't even mean that you intended to get there one day. But rather, being a Roman citizen meant that you lived out the values and desires and culture of Rome where you were. So it wasn't about getting to Rome, it was about getting Rome to be where you were. Now this is interesting for us because we have a letter from St. Paul to a group of Christians in Philippi. So this Roman colony, which we know had many, many Roman veteran soldiers there, it had many other people that earned their Roman citizenship, and it also had a small church. And St. Paul writes to that group of people one day, and uh, we have a copy of the letter. In Philippians chapter three, Paul writes to these people, and he says, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. Just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. See, in Philippi, because it was a Roman colony, in those days, sometimes people struggled with issues like greed and pride in those days. Um, and so Paul writes to these people and he starts to talk about that. But then he continues a couple of moments later, he says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Our citizenship 
is in heaven. And traditionally, uh, or rather more probably for the last couple of decades or so, the evangelical church has sort of read this sentence by Paul in a very particular way. And perhaps you've read this sentence before yourself or you've heard somebody talk about it, or even now as you read it, you're naturally drawn to interpret this in a particular way. And often how this text gets interpreted is, your citizenship is in heaven, so you're going to go to heaven one day and that should be your primary aim. Essentially, we hear citizens of heaven as a sort of promise for our future. But this isn't how anybody in Philippi would have heard this particular text. Instead, people in Philippi would have interpreted this notion of heavenly citizenship in the same way as they interpreted other notions of citizenship. Essentially, they would have immediately interpreted it probably the opposite way that we do. Because you see, Paul's talking to them about how they should live. He's not talking to them about where they're gonna go. And instead, I think it's quite easy to see that, that Paul would have said to these people that when he said your citizenship is in heaven, what he's saying to them is, your job here in Philippi is to live as heaven's people, to carry the culture and the values and the standards and the way of being that we know heaven wants us to live here. To be a citizen of heaven in Philippi doesn't mean you're going somewhere. It means you're bringing something to where you are. And this is sometimes quite, we, we find ourselves quite resistant to reading this text this way uh, in, in the kind of contemporary evangelical context because it feels like it's not quite what we're used to hearing. And also because if we're honest, there's a sort of obsession amongst contemporary Christianity about getting to heaven. It's, it's almost sometimes what we think we're Christians for. We're Christians so that we can all get to heaven. And this is interesting because the Bible actually says very, very little about that. The Bible spends a lot of time talking about something else entirely. What it spends most of its time talking about is how do we get heaven to earth? The Bible seems to be massively committed to this is God's creation and God wants to influence it and shape it and grow it and develop it in a very particular way, but, but that's hard work. And the role of the people of God is to somehow improve that trajectory, is to somehow bring that kingdom here. So biblical hope is not, let's all go to heaven, but rather the king is coming back and how do we bring heaven to his good earth? So essentially, when we read Philippians 3, what we're saying is Paul's not, when he talks about citizenship in heaven, he's not talking about travel directions. He's not talking about, oh, this is how we get there. Instead, he's actually talking about how we behave because that's who we are. Now, hopefully at some level that helps you. Because often what we do within Christianity is, is we think, we read all these passages in the New Testament that sort of tell us how we should probably be. Like, why don't you live like this? And why don't you live like that? And what we've done over the years because of our sort of obsession with assuming that we're all going to heaven is we assume that all of these things that we're told how to be and what to do, they're gonna be really important when we arrive at heaven. So you have this whole genre of joke, right? About the pearly gates jokes. I'm sure you've bumped into one or two. They're not just in Scotland, right? You know, so the premise of a, a whole hostage, there's two types of jokes in Scotland, people going to heaven and people going to bars. Um, and, that's, um, and that's basically because most of the stuff that happens in bars very quickly leads to people being at the pearly gates. Um, you'll follow that connection uh, eventually. But 
this sort of idea of, oh, we're gonna get here and then somehow the things that we've done back here will help, will be my credentials to get into heaven. But of course, if you've been around Westside for a while, you'll know that we, we talk about grace regularly and actually that our way of being with God is done through his gift to us and not anything that we've done. So like, why are we constantly asked to do things? And what you start to see when Paul talks about this idea of a heavenly citizenship is the logic as to why we're called to form our lives in a particular way isn't to help God, but is actually, isn't to help us get with God, but is actually to help get the kingdom and the concepts of God into the world that we live in. So when Paul says, hey, we're all citizens of heaven, I think it would be understood as a command to grow, to defend, to protect, to establish the way of life that heaven had called them to live. Perhaps we say it like this, it's a call to leak the values of the gospel, to kind of ooze out of you the notions of kingdom and of, and of Jesus. Because at sense of it all, Paul's saying Christians should think, feel, and act differently. You see this all through the New Testament. So of course then, this, this if we'll let it, if we just hold this notion of, of, of heavenly citizenship in perhaps a slightly different way to read it, this will affect a few other paradigms for us that we constantly engage with as Christians. So our basic notion often as, as Christians is based on this idea that we're here and we're all going there, right? So like where, you know, you, I, when I was a kid, like, and I was a kid in kind of the beginnings of Christian marketing, God help all of us, and um, we used to have t-shirts that said heaven bound. Anyone ever see one of them? So you're gonna show your age here for a second. Like what an awful, awful t-shirt. And, and, and we used to wear them as kids because we thought this is amazing. We'll wear these t-shirts. People will ask us about Jesus and become Christians. Um, and that happened um, never. Uh, uh, but a lot of people didn't talk to us, uh, which, which helped us because we felt like we were being persecuted and therefore God was really proud of us. Um, but we always talked about Christians are on this journey and we're going up to heaven. And as a kind of thinker, I often find myself laughing at that now. So why do we constantly talk about heaven as if it's up? Uh, you know, heaven's a spiritual realm. It's not geographically located. Up is the kind of Northern territories like the Yukon and everything like that. And hell isn't down. Down is, is America. Um, <laughs> well, let's move on. Um, but we kind of assume that our job is to be here and get there, and, and our primary role as the church then is to invite as many people as we can to get onto this sort of cosmic bus and let's all go there. It basically creates an assumption that the primary role of Christianity is to get people to come to you. And if we can just get people to come to you, then that will be okay. The funny thing is that you pick up the Bible one day and you start reading about Jesus. And you realize that that's not how Jesus seemed to work at all. In fact, Jesus seems to, although sure, he says from time to time he calls a few people to follow him, but most of Jesus' ministry seems to involve him being invited to other people's places. Not him doing the inviting to them, but them doing the inviting to him. Jesus was a sort of serial party goer. Uh, he seems to be at, uh, constantly at sort of meals and get-togethers and gatherings. Not that he's hosting them, but that other people, like there's something about Jesus that people thought, if I'm having a party, Jesus should totally be here. That would make this party rock, right? So, so for whatever reason, there's something about Jesus that people wanted him to be at their stuff. And the really interesting thing is, that's regardless of who they were. So they didn't need to be on the same faith journey. They didn't need to be of the same religious background. They didn't seem to need to be from the same culture and country. They just wanted Jesus there. 
My friend Paul Gibbs in, in, in a book that he just brought out recently called Shalom asks this question, why do we spend so much time, so much of our time, energy and resources inviting people when Jesus spent so much of his getting himself invited? So perhaps an important theological question for us to ask is, when was the last time that I was invited to participate in the lives of others because of who I am. So, like, I don't mean, you know, it's Christmas and you got invited to the Christmas party because everybody from the office got invited. Okay, like, you know, that's not living the kingdom, all right? That's just basic statistics, right? So, but, but I'm talking about when have we been asked as the people of Jesus to be invited into someone else's life because of who we are and because of the way that we live out our lives? Or maybe a, a better question to ask, which we'll relate to more is, is the party a theological place? Is that meal that you get invited a kingdom location. Now, hear me well, I'm not saying that inviting people to things is wrong, right? I'm not saying don't invite anybody to everything. I'm, don't, I'm not saying don't ever bring anyone to church. I'm not saying any of that. But invitational culture has a common flaw that most of us struggle, most humans struggle to actually see beyond. And basically the flaw is this. Generally speaking, when we invite people for something, we've already decided in advance how they're going to respond. So you, you know what it's like to be invited to something, right? You're sat in the office one day, you're typing on your keyboard and you hear the invitations beginning to go around. Here comes Jack and he's like, hey, I'm having the party tonight. You know, do you wanna come? And then he moves to Jenny and hey, do you wanna come to the party? And you're typing on your computer, but really you're just praying to Jesus, please invite me, please, please invite me. Uh, I mean, that might just be my experience of being a pastor in the Westside team. Uh, I don't know, but, uh, but you know, maybe, maybe, you're, uh, maybe you're just, you know, you're, you're kind of like there and thinking and you know what it's like to, to want to be invited, but you've probably also lived the other side of it. Maybe you were hosting a party or maybe you were getting married or, or having some big event and, and you come together with your significant other and you're like, let's plan this thing. And, uh, and, and you have your list and they have their list and they're different. And you have arguments for all the people on your list. They have arguments for all the people on their list. But what you do to begin with is the first thing you do is you put both of your lists down and you cross off everybody that you know is not going to come. I take off Auntie Joan. She has that thing with her head. She's never going to come. And uh, and then you know, and then there's Jack. He doesn't come to anything. And, and then there's Bob. He gets drunk. So you don't want to invite him because he's going to make a fool of us all. And then you slowly plan. You, have you ever done this? Like not about Jack, Joan, and Bob. I, I realize, but but we we decide in advance before inviting people that they're not going to respond, and therefore we don't invite them. And the other thing that happens in invitational culture is not only do we decide in advance how people are going to respond and act accordingly, the other problem is this. Generally, when we're doing the inviting, we invite people that we like and that are like us. So normally, we kind of end up in a kind of demographic that's broadly suitable to us and similar to us. And Jesus never seems to do this. He seems to be invited to other people's places, but he gets himself in all sorts of trouble by who he gets invited to because invariably he goes to the wrong people in the wrong places that aren't the sort of people that we're supposed to hang out with, Jesus. He turns it all around. Now, my friend Paul diagrams this in a way that you've, you've actually seen me. I've, I've stolen Paul's diagram before. Back in our 2017 series, The Edge of the City, uh, we talked about this diagram already, but I think it's worth us spending some time on again. 
So what often happens when it comes to us thinking about inviting people is we live within, let's just call it the box, right? Um, I mean, I think in, you might think about it as a bounded set, uh, but let's just talk about it as, as the box here today. It could be a framework, a structure, a way of thinking, a method, but for whatever reason, we draw the limits round. This is the sort of people that, that we think we can reach. And um, Jesus is here in the center of this box. I'll let you uh, use your interpretive skills to figure out which symbol represents Jesus. Um, it's a tough code. Uh, so what happens is rather than thinking of citizens of heaven, rather than thinking how do we bleed out the values of heaven, what instead we do is we build a box and say, this is the parameters that we're going to live within. This is the parameters of, of who we are. And then we divide the box up, right? Uh, so basically, and you know, we do this all the time and it doesn't just happen in the church, it happens across society. So inside the box, uh, we'll call this, this is, us people, and outside the box is you people. Um, is that too soon? Um, I could wear a really flowery jacket and, you know, but um, so inside the box is us, outside of the box is them. And, and those of us that are inside the box, we're the good people and, and everything's good with us and everybody outside of the box, they're the bad people. And thank goodness we have the box because otherwise like the bad people might rub off us, us and we'd get bad people cooties and, uh, and then we'd struggle, you know, being Jesus' people. So thank goodness for the box. And so therefore our whole paradigm of thought often as the church becomes who's in and who is out. This, of course, creates very evident boundaries. And as a result, very often what happens to those of us who are Christians is we don't get invited to anything from people who are outside of the box because we've made it, made it pretty blatantly clear that they're not like us and we don't really like them. And so what happens is we then start to think purely in terms of who's in. Who uh, goes to my church or who goes to a church kind of like ours? Who is in my group? Uh, who, is, who has my beliefs? Uh, and that, that kind of becomes the box that, that we work within. And, and then the truth is, it's really hard for somebody outside that to invite us, and it's really hard for us inside that to invite anybody else. Also, hopefully, as this image is on the screen for a little longer, it starts to irritate you just ever so slightly that there are more people outside of the box than there are inside of the box. Uh, that should probably bug some of us. That just like, mm, okay, you know, in a pure numbers game here, I'm not liking the way this is looking. So as a church, if we think this way, it stops us thinking about our responsibility to be citizens of heaven. It stops us from thinking about our responsibility to leak the values of Jesus wherever we go. And it also starts to blind us to really, really obvious stuff. Uh, and this, I think, in one sense, actually can help us in a whole host of ways of how we think about our Christianity and our religion. So things that we start to miss really easily. Um, for example, not everyone inside this box is moving toward Jesus. Uh, you notice that quite quickly, actually, as you look at this. So not everyone inside the box is moving towards Jesus. Uh, but then, okay, just expand that thought for a moment. Not everyone outside of the box is moving away from Jesus. The box is still there, but the trajectory of people isn't really being defined by the box. And in fact, if you just want to, uh, you know, think about this for a second more, in fact, there are more people outside of the box moving towards Jesus than there are people inside of the box towards Jesus. A recent study at Houston University noticed that Humans have immense empathy and an immense capacity to be loving and show compassion. 
but what's really interesting is that most of us deploy our love and our compassion selectively. Uh, insanely, uh, insanely, yeah, let's just go with that. Insanely, uh, we, uh, I don't actually know what word I was going for, but I now feel like insanely had a prophetic ring to it, so I'm just gonna leave it out there. Instead, what we often prefer to do is show love and compassion to people who are in our group and largely be dismissive to people who are outside of our group. So we see people being compassionate. The likelihood is we're often being compassionate to people like us who are in the group with us. Fortunately, Jesus didn't work like this at all. In fact, Jesus didn't build a box. He wasn't really interested in the labels of whether you're in or whether you're out. Jesus was interested in people's trajectory. What was the direction that a person was moving in? Jesus was more interested in the invitation from somebody who was far off but heading towards him than he was of seeking the approval of somebody nearby heading away from him. That's why you see Jesus cover immense portions of land to reach particular people because they've invited him to take part in their story with him. But at the same time, sometimes Jesus feels quite dismissive of people nearby because he senses that these nearby people aren't actually interested in what it is that he's got going on. If we adjust our model and think differently, instead of thinking about who's in and who's out, but rather thinking who is maybe far away but trying to be near, and who might be near but is actually trying to be far, it can change our paradigm of how we see what it is to be the people of the kingdom. It might be that the people that we never think are interested in what God's got going on might actually be the people that want to have a conversation with you. But if you've built a box and they're on the outside, that conversation is always going to be difficult. If you've built a box and decided that they're them and you're us, it's gonna be hard. Henri Nguyen once prayed a prayer which, is, which said this. He said, God help me to see others, not as my enemies or as ungodly, but rather as thirsty people. And I think this perspective is rooted in a text that we've used a few times already this year. In Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse seven, Jeremiah writes to a people in exile who are in a place that isn't quite what they wanted to be in. And he says to them, seek the shalom of the city. Shalom, this deep Hebrew word which speaks to notions of peace and wholeness. So Jeremiah says to this group of people, you should seek the well-being of the city. He doesn't say build a box and hold on tight because God's coming to rescue you. He doesn't say build a box so that you don't figure out, so that you don't ever, ever forget who you are and don't talk to anybody else. Instead, he gives them this task. Go out and be part of this city and seek its peace. Pray for it, but seek its peace. So it's not just a passive sort of thing, just gonna sit back and see what happens, but there's an active role that Jeremiah calls God's people to. He says, you gotta do something to bring peace to this place. It's not just in Jeremiah. In, in 1 Peter chapter two, uh, Peter writes to another group of Christians and he says to them, like even though you're foreigners and even though you're exiles where you are, live good lives. Because when you live a particularly type of good life, what happens, he says, is that people will see that aspect of your good life, your good deeds, and they will glorify God as a result of this. What is Peter doing? What is Jeremiah doing? Well, actually, they're doing the same thing that Paul's doing in Philippians 3. They're saying, live beyond yourself. Live outside of the boundaries you would normally put yourself in and actually believe that as someone who is a citizen of heaven, you can change the environment and you can bring wholeness where you are. 
Let's think about our city. Like Calgary needs wholeness. Calgary needs shalom. And many of us would have different ideas as to how we might bring that shalom to Calgary. But one thing we know for sure is that we can't accommodate it in this building. Like we can't bring peace to our city by simply being in here. Right? It's, not, it's not big enough for God's plans for our city. It's not got the capacity enough for our plans for our city. But what we do believe is that this can be a place that facilitates that. But on a simple, basic statistical analysis, we can come to the conclusion that if our call as God's people is to somehow bring peace to this city, we're gonna have to do it somewhere else. We're gonna have to do it in our workplaces and in our universities and in our daycares that we drop our kids off at. We're gonna have to do it somehow in schools and in our streets, in our neighborhoods, in the clubs that we're part of. We're gonna have to do it somewhere else. And Jeremiah chapter 29 in verse seven essentially asks that of us. Look beyond where you are, look beyond what you've simply got now and ask how can we, how can we bring God's peace? Like and ask us to think differently. Often what's happened in church life is we basically decided that our primary role as the church is to preserve the past. Let's try and keep it the way things used to be. But actually, you never see that request in the New Testament. Instead, the New Testament calls us to live as future people, to live forward, to point forward, to think about what the future is going to be like. What do we need to be as a people so that our children can live in a city of peace? What does it need to look like in 50 years' time for our grandchildren to, to live and move in a city of peace? And what it won't look like is us just trying to preserve what things were like 10, 20 years ago, but rather be, being able to think differently and wider. And ultimately, to hear that call that God doesn't want us just to simply gather in a single place, but he wants us to leak out these kingdom values everywhere we are. But of course, to do that, we have to think a little bit differently. In a quote that you see quite regularly floating around church movements, uh, so regularly is it floating around that nobody can remember who said it first, but uh, somebody said this, a disciple is somebody who has moved from being the recipient of the church's mission to being responsible for the church's mission. Paul's idea of citizenship of heaven changes us from simply living in a box that asks, am I in or am I out? Citizenship calls us to have an attitude of responsibility that says in my space and in my locations, I'm trying to leak out certain values. And so in some sense, I wanna ask like, how do we do that? What, what does that even look like? Well, let me just throw out one really simple thing just to, for you to take away with this week. What if we just tried to live questionable lives? Michael Frost, in his little book, Surprise the World, asks us this particular question, and I find, it, I find its awkwardness quite nice. What does it look to live like, live in such a particular way that people want to ask you questions about it? What does it look like to live your life in such a way that you arouse curiosity from the people that you spend time with? Like maybe the first thing is like, don't be boring. Like Christians shouldn't be boring. Jesus followers shouldn't be boring. Right? But we should be curious. But here's the thing, that's not actually that easy. You know, sometimes I hear people say, well, you know, what we need to do as Christians is we need to go to our workplaces and we need to be really nice because being really nice will really help people come to Jesus. Well, here's something that I know, um, that uh, people that are not Christians are, are nice. 
like really nice. Like I've had Christians that I have Christians be nice to me. I've had people who are not Christians be nice to me. Uh, I've had uh, actually more people who are Christians be not nice to me than I've had people who are not Christians be not nice to me. So there's a there's a problem, um, you know. Uh, but I haven't yet decided to be a not Christian. So something else is kind of navigating this for me. Um, you go to your workplace and decide, I want to make coffee for everybody. Well, plenty of people make coffee. Like, I want to wave at my neighbors when I mow the lawn. Well, you know, for the three weeks of the year that we can be outside and mowing the lawn, that's probably not going to change a whole deal of much. The problem is a lot of our paradigms for understanding how can we be different don't actually make us different. They just make us slightly nicer versions from average. So maybe part of the call of being a citizen of heaven is to use all of your God-given creativity to say, how do I live the type of life that creates questions that people want to ask? How do I arouse the curiosity of the people that I rub shoulders with that they might say, what is it about you? And they probably won't say, what is it about you? But what they probably will do is come and talk to you about particular things when they need someone to talk to And too often, I think, as Christians, our lives are either indescript or boring, and therefore we don't find ourselves in the places that people want to invite you into their story. So essentially, I end with just a very simple question for us this morning. If we really are citizens of heaven, how do we make our lives more curious?